0: Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark. Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles They saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming near the boat. They were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. And they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Would you take a moment in silence to reflect on the word, and then I will pray before we continue. Father in heaven, in the quietness of our hearts, we believe you speak to us through your living word. These are not stagnant letters on a page. Be they in red ink or black ink, they carry with them the legacy and even more so the power of what you have spoken to your people now for generations as we anticipate that great harbor of finding your kingdom and finding sanctuary in you. Lord, in the storms that each of us face, whether right now it may just be a slight drizzle or for some, say hurricane, we thank you that your great plan is not to meet us on the other side, but to meet us in the middle, that we would find you there, calling out to us, it is I, do not be afraid. Would you bring that gladness to our hearts this morning as we consider your word, as you brought to your disciples when you entered the boat with them. Lord, here's our boat. It's a little building, Ashton Avenue, and we're all sitting here floating around where we came in here thinking we knew what we were doing, but it would be a wonderful thing for us, Lord, if you would so confound us by the truth and power and authority of your word, that we could do nothing but be glad in your presence. We ask for your spirit, for your help, that Christ might be magnified and we might be built up in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're walking through the Gospel of John, chapter 6, under this theme of the bread of life. And this is a kind of funny moment here in that last week we looked at the first 14 verses and saw why this chapter is about the bread of life, right? He multiplied to an innumerable account, up to 20,000 people perhaps were fed with just a few pieces of bread at the start and a couple fish. And as we read at the end of the last week's passage in 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Great, the prophet. We stopped there and considered what that meant. And the, uh, the even the, the time frame upon which Jesus did this miracle was around Passover time. And so naturally, people are thinking about Moses and the manna that, that God... F- gave them from the sky every day to sustain them. And they they would have seen a great sense of imagery in the sign, but they clearly missed it. We see that in verse 15 of our passage for today. Because it was at this moment that Jesus saw that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. And it was then that Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And then we have the story about him sending the disciples out onto the sea and a terrible, terrible storm that frightened all of them, even the four fishermen that were in the boat. And he meets them on the sea and he walks on the water and boy, can you just kind of imagine, this has got to be a short sermon today because don't we all know this story? We kind of just look and see, all right, Jesus meets us in the middle of our storms. That's great. Can we go home now? Got to get back to my storm. Got a lot going on. And so often we would like to take little snippets of truth from God's word and simply skip back on to what we were doing before and imagine that we're going to take those snippets of truth with us though we haven't actually sat and thought deeply about God's word. I don't know, maybe that's just me so easy for us uh, in the day of our technology to set a reminder hey don't forget to read a bible verse today you can even install a bible app on your phone that can say hey here's a little verse for the day that you can you know quickly digest as you're brushing your teeth and then go back out into the world and kind of easily forget about it it's what makes this kind of moment that we're in right now so important Not because you're going to listen to me for the next minutes or so, or because of anything other than the fact that this is something that Christ has called us to do, to gather together as his people, to look at his word, and to hear from him. And to sit in that for a moment. Which is one of the hardest things we can do, right? Conversely, the disciples seem to have wanted to stay on the other side of the lake with the crowds. Because the Gospel of Mark tells us in chapter 6, verse 46, or rather in chapter 6, sorry, Mark, that's a different passage. Chapter 6 of Mark shows us that the disciples actually wanted to stay and that Jesus had to constrain them, actually force them into the boat. Like you get this picture of him pushing them in and saying, just go, just go, just go. And out of the 12 of them, you can kind of imagine, man, Jesus is going pretty well. I mean, talk about an evangelistic opportunity here. Everybody wants you to stay. Everybody is coming towards you. Everybody wants something from you. And he sends them away. Now again, this kind of seems like a weird interjection. We're going to be looking at a picture of a guy holding a loaf of bread throughout this time. What in the world does this story have to do with bread? And I'll tell you, that has been my biggest wrestle all week long. How does this fall under the the purview of this idea of the bread of life? Because the story is so exciting and so happy and so comforting. Last week, isn't it? We we talked about that that wonderful smell of fresh, fresh, wow, fresh, baked bread. Talking is hard sometimes. But we talked about that, that smell of how how it smells like home. You know, this isn't exactly what they experienced, but certainly when we think about bread, we're thinking uh, so many emotions and thoughts and memories just flood our minds of of comfort and a place to stay and a sanctuary that we would love to just build in that moment and stay right there if we possibly could. Jesus sends them away. It's because the sign of the bread of life was simply that. It was just a sign. It wasn't meant to be the end-all, be-all of everything. And the way that he's going to emphasize that to his disciples is to send them out into a storm over which he himself is completely sovereign and in control over. Something that we need to see from the passage this morning is that the authority of Christ over the storms of our lives does not contradict the character of Christ, but in fact enhances it. And that's kind of a hard thing for us to get. Because we imagine, okay, God loves us, God is good, he has good things planned for me. When storms come, his only plan could possibly be, if he's good and he loves me, to get rid of the storm. And even some of us who have ascended to the next spiritual plane of that, in one sense, have said, yes, and then I will learn something from that storm. So, so I'm sitting in the storm and constantly asking God, what is it that you want me to learn How am I going to learn something? What are you teaching me? What are you trying to talk to me? And that's a really good thing to do in the middle of a storm, isn't it? And yet Jesus doesn't get in the boat and say, now disciples, let me tell you all about this, why I did this, why. He doesn't do that. He doesn't give a sermon to the disciples in the middle of the boats. It's his presence in the midst of the storm And his authority over it, because the end of the passage, it seems miraculous to me. I know that Bible scholars are all over the place on this, whether it was or wasn't. But in verse 21, it says they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. If we were reading the Gospel of Mark and we saw the word immediately, I mean, that's his bread and butter. That's the word that he uses to start almost every sentence, it feels like. But John doesn't use the word immediately too much. I think he's pointing out to us that there was something spiritually, supernaturally, amazingly done by Jesus that as they got halfway through the lake and were stuck in the middle of the storm and met Jesus there, he miraculously brought them to the other side of the lake, potentially three to four miles in a moment. You might say, yeah. And contrary to what you just said, Nick, verse 21 shows me that his whole purpose is just to get me through it so I can say, thanks, Jesus, now back to what I was doing before. I think there has to be more to it than that, however. So he gives this bread to this massive crowd and leaves the crowd behind and sends his disciples ahead into a storm, the, kind of the last place that we'd want to go. You know, we, we, we check our weather apps and we watch the weather channel and we consider what temperature thing it's going to be in the morning and, and how we can plan ahead. And do I need to go out 15 minutes early and start up my car or all those kinds of things flood our minds. I mean, the disciples were not given a forecast before going out there. This was Jesus's plan for them. Now, in thinking about this literal storm, of course, we need to be asking the broader question and the more symbolic question in a lot of ways, because while this is a literal true story, there's also something for us to get as we consider the storms of our own lives and Christ's authority over them. So what storms are in your life today or recently? Maybe you've made your way through to the other side of the sea. Maybe you're in the midst of it. Maybe it's on the horizon. Maybe you have no idea, but there are storms in life. About six or seven years ago, I'm embarrassed about this story, but it will be to your great spiritual edification, I'm sure. My wife and I were driving from Indiana back to Northeast Ohio. It's like almost a five-hour drive that turned into about eight hours. And the funny thing was, is that we'd been teased by my, my sister-in-law about how we, we don't travel well. You know, so we made this joke of hashtag don't travel well because, you know, we, uh, our car broke down or because we took the wrong exit or we missed this or we missed that, whatever it was. So this, this joke was going on and we are like, ah, it's no big deal. We'll get back home just fine. It's spring break. We're not worried about weather. And this terrible snowstorm happens. And I'm driving my little Chevy Cobalt, which is a terrible car for the snow. And as we're on the highway, and my highly cautious self is just thinking, if I don't get there till tomorrow, I don't care. I just want to get there alive. I will sit in the right lane and drive 20 miles an hour if I have to. I, I can be some, one of the most annoyingly cautious drivers at times, particularly in bad snow. And as we're on the highway and cars are speeding past us, and to me just going light speed in front of me, I just finally said, I'm done. I'm going to take the next exit and we're just going to find our way back. At this time, we didn't have smartphones. We had one of those little TomTom GPSs that you sit on your um, dashboard and it hadn't been updated for like eight years or something. So who knows whether it was right or wrong. So I made this brilliant idea of let's get off track here and let's find a safer route where there's nobody else to worry about. Well. Roads are now a bigger problem, right, on, on the side roads. And so there's more ice, there's more snow, there's more hills, uphill, downhill, around, tur- turns, curves. I don't think I blinked for like two hours straight. It was that kind of, I, I might, you might have, if you had been there, you might say it wasn't that bad. But for me, it was that bad. It was a real storm. And I got to a point where I realized I can't do this. I started this and said, I'll just drive all night if I have to. And I looked over at Sarah and I said, I got to stop for a minute. I can't, I can't keep my eyes open. I need a break. And she's like, we don't have anywhere to stop. You got off the highway. We don't see gas stations. We're we're passing, you know, the woods and maybe a stray house or, or whatever. It's a very strange place. And I was like, it's okay. The Lord will just show us someplace that we can stop. And right about that time, we saw this cute little house with a beautiful gazebo in the front and, you know, just that kind of lawn ornamentation that you go, this, there's some nice lady who lives here that wants to take us in for a little while. And I thought, I should send my pregnant wife up to the front door, you know? I mean, we could really, like, lean into, like, the sort of Christmas narrative if we really have to. My wife is with child. There's nowhere in the inn. Again, Sarah is looking at me like, this is, why are we doing this? This is kind of silly, but it's a great Great wife, a great partner in crime. She went along with it. We went up and knocked on the door, and the nicest lady opened the door. And indeed, she let us in. We sat at her kitchen table. She was making soup. She gave us a drink. She let us rest there at the table for as long as we wanted and talked to us about her life and her family. I mean, if we would have stayed any longer, she probably would have fed us dinner. But it was crazy. Um, We got out of there, and the storm stopped, and we made it home eventually. Uh, It still took a good while, but it was one of those moments that I I really just thought, what is the point of all of this except to greatly annoy me or to scare me half to death? And that's what storms do, don't they? They're going to either annoy you if you're tough or scare you to pieces. And this is what happened to the disciples on the sea. The sea in the Old Testament is bad news. Nobody in the Old Testament or in the New Testament likes the sea, particularly in this, uh, in this area where Jesus is and the disciples that he had chosen. These There were four of them who were fishermen. They knew a little bit about being out on the, on the sea, but they didn't know anything about true you know, sea travel or trading. They didn't have any of that going on. And so throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, Christina read from Psalm 107 earlier um, about the, the treacherous, treacherous nature of the sea and how the lord had to deliver people from it and it's fascinating because this was Jesus's choice over against verse 15 they were going to come and take him by force and make him what king now isn't that funny is he king yeah can you kind of imagine as one of the disciples that Jesus is shoving into the boat that you might say lord Why the rush? And if he said, hey, listen, they actually want to take me and make me the king. And you might say, so do I. I mean, isn't that what you're here for? Why are we going across the sea? This doesn't make any sense at all. But this was Christ's choice over coming under the influence of this crowd that sought to control him, Jesus actually leads his disciples into the middle of the sea where a terrible storm is about to rage so that he can show his control over that storm. Jesus withdrew to the mountain after sending his disciples there. And this is not something to glance over in verse 16 because mountains are important. I know in Lima, we don't really know that, do we? (laughs) Because there's not a lot of them. But when you go out of the area and you find mountains, you get the sense of grandeur, right? If you've seen them, you know mountains are a big deal. And in the Bible, they're even more of a big deal because they're symbolic. Uh, Twofold this morning for us, a mountain could be a place of sanctuary, of refuge, of safety. And this is something, again, Mark tells us in chapter 6 in his telling of this story. He says that Jesus withdrew to the mountain in order to do what? Does anybody know? What did he do? To pray, right? He went there to pray. He went there to be with his father, to be in a place of sanctuary. But secondly, mountains are also a place of authority. Where was it that Moses received the Ten Commandments from God? On what Sinai? Plateau Sinai? Field Sinai? No, it was Mount Sinai. On the mountain, a place of authority, a place of sanctuary. And Christ goes to express both of those things. While well, he sends his disciples out on the sea. Again, the disciples perhaps might have been complaining, Jesus, why are we leaving? Well, it's because of this. Okay, well, I don't want to argue with Jesus. Hold on. Why aren't you coming with us? We're following you. The whole idea of you sending us away seems very contrary to that, doesn't it? And certainly in the church, we have no, no um, idea what that would be like Right, Because there's never any times that we feel like Christ is far from us. We always sense his presence. We know the Bible says that his spirit dwells within us, and there's never a moment where we wonder, where are you, Jesus? I'm being sarcastic. We wonder this all the time, don't we? Where are you? And we'd love to simply rush to the idea that he's with us. He, and he is. He is. Could it also be that he's doing something else besides simply being with us? And to the disciples, he literally wasn't even with them. He went to the mountain, and they went on the sea. And I wonder what it would be like for us to consider what Jesus could be doing in the mountain during the storm of your own life. The storms that come in life come because of the curse, because of the fall, because of the, the act of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And rather again than Jesus just simply saying, hey, storms aren't how things are supposed to go. I'm just going to get rid of them. He actually redeems the purpose of a storm, and he shows us that here. Jesus led them to it, and he met them in it. What he wants us to know is that the storms of this life are not here apart from his knowing, first and foremost. Simple Sunday school theology. Nothing happens that God doesn't know about, right? So the storms of life are not hear apart from his knowing and they are not independent of his direction. He is not one who says, I just simply know what's going to happen, but I don't really have any control over it. The storms listen to his voice. We see that in the end of this story, right? He doesn't actually say anything to them in this telling from the Gospel of John, but clearly when he enters the boat, he's showing his authority over the waves yet again after having walked upon them. listen to him he's aware of what's going to happen and what they're all about and he says in the end to his disciples in the greek ego e it is i in other places we translate that phrase very importantly to the phrase i am and this is a big translate transition in the gospel of john because we haven't seen the i am statements yet We haven't really hit the the bulk of them yet in the Gospel of John, and we are about to, and, and many theologians believe this is indeed the first one. I am. It is I. Do not be afraid. That all sounds really good. We still have to deal with the fact that we have to sail through this storm and that we don't want to sail through whatever that storm may be. We would like to find Jesus in the easier part of life and not in the middle of it. Certainly the disciples were glad when they saw who he was when he entered into the boat. But do you remember here in verse 19 when they had rowed about three or four miles? They're tired, they're getting nowhere. I mean, they got three or four miles, but they're not there yet. The sea at at the longest is six or seven miles long, I think. They saw Jesus walking on the sea and they didn't go, oh, guys, there he is. He's here. He's walking on the sea, just like we expected. They had no idea. They didn't understand the authority of Jesus. Jesus never teaches you a lesson that you don't need to learn, right? There's never going to be the day where you're learning something that God's teaching you, and you go, oh, I already know this. And he goes, oh, sorry, just counted his review then. He's teaching them something totally foreign to their minds. The depth of his authority over even the storm. The storm that, again, is the perfect picture of everything wrong with the world and everything that comes against us and, in many cases, everything we create on our own by our sin. We like to come up with our own solutions. We'd like to get the forecast. We'd like to change our course, go a different route, find some other way. We'll see Jesus on the other side. But the disciples, when they saw him, they were frightened. They had no idea that it was him. I mean, they didn't know it until he spoke to them. And for that moment, all the disciples are saying, there's a ghost, uh, a Leviathan, uh, you know, what you pick your, your scary sea story. That's what they're thinking about. Something awful is about to happen. The storm was one thing, but now there's somebody walking on the storm and they're more afraid of that than they are of the storm. They, they don't want anything to do with it. If Jesus hadn't spoken, they would have begun rowing back and gone back the three or four miles that they had already covered. It was dark. Jesus hadn't yet come to them. John knows retro, you know, with foresight, he's able to say, oh, this is, it was dark, and he hadn't come to them. I know he's going to come to them eventually, but they didn't know that in the moment. You know, the solution that we started with in verse 15 of the crowds for the storms of life that interrupt our enjoying the bread of life was to come and make Jesus their puppet king. Because they already had a puppet king, they had Rome's puppet king. Rome was in charge of King Herod. Everybody knew it. Herod knew it, Rome knew it, Judea knew it. And when Jesus says, when, when, it re- when Jesus realizes, rather, that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, that is not an act of submission, is it? It's an act of aggression. You don't submit by force, right? Those things don't go together. They're not making him their king in the way that they're saying, like, hey, our lives are yours. They're saying, your life is ours. Come and be our king. We'll put you up where we want you to be. We'll tell you what we want you to do, and we'll run this show. Now, would they have said all those words? Of course not. That's the state of the heart that says, I'm going to take Jesus and make him my king by force not by submission. That was their solution. That was what Jesus was actually saving his disciples from by sending them into the what? The nice, quiet meadow where they could relax. Not this time. Sending them into the storm. Many of us will remember, of course, Job's story in the Old Testament and the affliction he faced and and especially the, the kind of outside of his life that we see in heaven and the dialogue of, Jesus, of God and of Satan and, and Satan coming to God and saying, hey, I've been all over the world and God saying, well, have you ever considered Job? I mean, God sets Job up for the trials that he's about to face that involve the death of his children and the destruction of his property, the total undoing of his material life completely. Satan didn't come and say, I got this great idea. I'd love to just wreck Job's life. God said, why don't you go wreck Job's life? At one point in Job chapter 30, verse 22, Job says to God, you lift me up on the wind. Doesn't that sound nice, right? This is where we, it's so easy to take Bible verses out of context. Be like, I want my life verse to be Job 30, 22. You lift me up on the wind. Doesn't that sound great? Continue reading after the semicolon. You make me ride on it. Okay, see, that sounds awesome. I'd love to fly and you toss me about in the roar of the storm. Oh, I see. It wasn't about, no, it wasn't an inspirational Hallmark card. It was Job realizing the authority of God over the storms of his life and using that storm imagery in a powerful way. You toss me about in the roar of the storm. Job knew the goodness of God. And his biggest struggle was wrestling with the concept of his goodness and his sovereignty or his perfect, all-encompassing authority over all things. How can those two things go together? We've already asked this question. If God is good and he loves me, then even if a storm happens to show up in my life, it's only there so that he can undo it and so that I can move on with what I was supposed to do. But that simply can't be true if Jesus actually meets them in the midst of the storm, can it? We might be able to say, okay, that's the answer. If they were able to row themselves through the storm, get to the other side and find Jesus over there and say, we did it, just us and our oars. We didn't sail because the wind was against us. We rowed all the way here. Now we would love Jesus to make you our king by force. We would love to take you and make you everything that we would like you to be. Jesus is not going to allow that to happen. Now, none of us have come into church this morning with our fists shaking towards heaven, saying, Lord, I just want you to be everything I want you to be. But this is indeed the outcry of our fallen nature. For in Christ, we're being redeemed from that. We're being made new so that that voice of saying, I just want God to do what I want to do so that I can keep going on my own path, avoiding all the storms and taking the easy route everywhere I possibly can. Or perhaps saying, I just want Jesus to meet me at the finish line so that I have something to prove to him and to show him that I've endured so much and that this life has been so hard that I deserve something from him. I'd like to come and take him by force and make him my king. Tell him what I would like him to do. And this is not what Christ will have for his disciples. Is a different view for us to take of our storms in our lives. Now, certainly some of the storms that we face are not directly of our doing whatsoever. They are a consequence of living in a fallen world. Things happen around us apart from our participation and they affect us daily and they weigh heavy on us, don't don't they? Often we might be able to look at the things that we've brought on ourselves and in maturity say, this is my fault. I carry the burden for making the decisions that I did, taking the actions that I did, saying the things that I said. But even if we can get to that point, there are those storms that are outside that we would say, Lord, I just need you to get me through this because I know this isn't my fault. And therefore, it doesn't have any bearing on my life except for for you to get me through this. Yet these storms exist as a clear picture not only of the problem of sin in the world around us, but the problem of sin in our own hearts. Because if we take that attitude towards the storms of life that come at us from outside and just say, Lord, I don't know what's going on. I don't deserve this. Then God's just revealed something very ugly in our hearts. He's revealed that there's an attitude in our hearts that, that ultimately amounts to what Jesus did on the cross wasn't necessary. Because the whole message of the cross is he bore the wrath of God that we deserve so that we might have the love of God. And if I can only look at the storms outside of my own activity as something that I'm meant to get through that I'm completely innocent of and that that's the whole story, then I'm missing a clear illustration that is meant to humble me and bring me to glad rejoicing in the end, just like the disciples The problem is is that so many people who claim to have known Christ are going to spend an eternity apart from him because they would not embrace the obedience of going through the storm with Christ, but simply saw it as an obstacle for themselves to overcome or something that they're just completely innocent of and have nothing to do with. I wonder if you have a temptation to either way in your own heart. Maybe you think about that and you go, I don't get anything that this guy's saying. But tell me this: How do you deal with the storms in your life? Do you see them as setbacks only? Yeah, sure, they're setbacks. Let's—we're not going to live in a fantasy world where we're like, oh, everything's perfect, and we we rejoice in tribulation in a way as though we act like n- none of it hurts or none of it's hard. Oh no, Jesus lived a clearly obvious life when he was going to go to the cross and he spent time in prayer with his father, he didn't skip into the Garden of Gethsemane and sing praise songs. He bowed with his face to the dirt, sweating drops of blood, and said, Lord, if there's any other way, would you let this cup pass from me? And the space between, Lord, is there any other way for this cup to pass from me, and the next phrase of, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done, is right where you're meant to live today. Is there any other way? Acknowledge the truth of that statement and say, yeah, life is hard. What this sinful world throws at us and what we bring upon ourselves apart from Christ, it's difficult. It's weighty. It's heavy. It's challenging. It's too much for us. We cannot row our little rowboat through the storm on our own. And the scariest thing perhaps would be for us to imagine that once that storm or trial is over, that we did get through it on our own. Brothers and sisters, you know people that you work with that are neighbors, that are friends and relatives who face storms apart from Christ. And again, it's very easy for us to look on the outside and be like, I don't know how he's doing that without knowing Jesus. The truth is we do know. They're rowing like crazy and they might happen by his grace to get to the other side of the sea, but they're not going to see him when they get there. And and, and even more terrifying, they might stand before God one day and say, Lord, I made it through this big trial, this big test you've given me. What reward do I have? And he's going to say, I don't give out rewards for accomplishments. I give grace So your testimony is so vital to the people around you because everyone has some kind of storm going on. And you need to take the time to ask somebody what that is so that you can offer them sanctuary in Christ. But you have to ask yourself first, what message do you hear in the middle of the storm? Do you simply hear, this is just something for us to get through, the kids are sick yet again, boy, have we been living that, right? They're sick with one thing, and then the other kid gets it, and then the other kid gets it, and then the mom gets it, and then the dad gets it. And then by the time it's gone, another one comes right along. Whatever that storm might be, we need to recognize that Jesus wants to meet us on the waves of that storm. And notice again, the end of the story, very happy. He gets in the boat, the storm stops, and they're immediately where they were meant to be. But notice that when they see him, Jesus is meeting them in the midst of the storm. He's not coming with clear skies over him. Do you remember, sorry, do you remember the Truman Show? It's one of my favorite movies. Okay, good, good. Do you remember that part when he's on the beach and he's got that one cloud of rain dripping on him and he moves away from it and the cloud follows him? I don't want you to think about Jesus as the opposite of that, that he's got a glowing halo behind his head and everywhere he goes, the clouds just part and everything's fine. The Savior that we have is not one who comes and says, I've got this perfect life where everything is easy, everything is smooth. You can just follow me right in. He does say, hey, take up my yoke and learn from me. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. But he is also a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief a man who had no place to lay his own head, a man who had no sanctuary of home like what we long to get to right after church, right? Jesus meets us on the waves of the storm because he gets it. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but we have one who is tempted in every way, just like we are. Tempted to sin, yes, but also tempted to despair, tempted to faithlessness, tempted to doubt, and yet he was without sin. Problem is, is that we are not without sin. We have given into sin. We are guilty of sin. Apart from Christ, we would have no hope through the storm. But he meets us in the midst of the storm. He goes to the cross. He bears the cross. He overcomes the cross and rises from death and brings us victory. He meets us in the storm. They saw him walking, coming near the boat, and they were frightened. Of course they were. Of course they were, because when Jesus was on the cross, none of his disciples stayed with him, did they? He was one that people wanted to look away from. Great mystery, these allusions to what Christ's true mission really is in moments like him walking on the sea. And again, maybe it takes a whole week spent in this passage. Maybe it just takes a few minutes. We need to stop and consider the importance of this. Jesus is not doing parlor tricks for the disciples. Well, you thought the fish and the bread were cool, wait till you see what I can do in the storm. There was no applause. There was only fear that was turned to gladness. He was the I am, the, the divine name, that, that it is I translated to Greek and then translated back to Hebrew refers all the way back to what, G, what Moses was told to tell the people of Israel. Who who am I supposed to say is sending me? Tell them I am has sent me. And so Jesus here shows us, just as he did last week with the feeding of the 5,000 plus, that that story in the Old Testament of the manna falling from heaven was going to be fulfilled in him. And now he shows us here that that story of Moses leading the Israelites over the Red Sea, you remember it, right? Moses sticks his staff in the ground, and the sea splits in half and obeys him because he's under God's authority. And he looks to Israel and he says, today the Lord will fight for you, Exodus 14, 14, and you have nothing but to be silent. So Christ comes in and brings his own greater, deeper silence because he does not come apart from the Father's authority, but he does come as one who is united to the Father and in perfect unison with his will. And so it goes greater than simply the, I mean, simply we say, but I mean, it was an amazing thing that the Red Sea split in half and they walked on dry ground. But Jesus comes and calms the storm entirely and walks above the waters. He's not just another Moses. He shows us that that crossing was just a taste of the salvation that he'd bring at the cross. And he's the one who truly overcame the waves of our sin And in the end, this is what the disciples needed to see. They needed to see Jesus like they'd never seen him before in the midst of the storm. Their fear was turned to gladness. So has he done that for you? Has your fear turned to gladness? And if it hasn't yet, if you are in that three to four mile stretch in the storm, know that the end result is designed for you to go from fear to gladness, to be rejoicing in what the Savior has done on your behalf that all the consequences of the storm are done away with entirely. J.C. Ryle is a pastor I, I really admire from the 1800s, and he says of this passage, we learn to know the value of Christ's company when we have it by the discomfort we experience when we have it not. We learn to value that Jesus is with us because of the times that it seems like he wasn't. The discomfort, those experiences where it seems like the goodness of God is being kept from me and all I see is the authority of his wrath and justice. And No, in Christ, there is no condemnation. We, When we experience storms, we're not experiencing, hey, here's just a little bit of what you deserve that we saved. It wasn't on the cross, it's been put on you. No, Jesus satisfied the wrath of God for you. But the storms still come and they have a greater purpose now. They have an important purpose of us embracing them as the meeting place with Jesus, as the true sanctuary in the midst of the storm. So I have three things for you to end with this morning. First of all, I want you to note in application that Jesus sent his disciples to the other side of the sea. He did not send the crowds. This is tragic and sad, isn't it? He sent a small group of his disciples outside of that temptation. That wasn't that he didn't care for those crowds. But there's a distinction that is made in how storms are going to be dealt with. And because you go through a storm doesn't mean that God hates you. It could, in fact, mean that he loves you with an everlasting love, that people who do not know him will not experience or understand. He sent his disciples out in the storm to find him there. Though they didn't see him, he sustained them until the end. So is he sending you into a storm? Is there one on the horizon? It is a good sign, brothers and sisters. I know that sounds so wishy-washy and perhaps just fake and phony, but it is a good thing. So You will rejoice in the end for what God brings you through as he walks with you. Secondly, see the storms for what they are. They are a sanctuary with Christ. R.C. Sproul says that when Jesus was on the waves, the divinity of Christ broke through in a marvelous and, and an unexpected way. His divinity, his godness showed so clearly. It would have driven his disciples to worship, as we see in the other tellings in the Gospels. But just as the divinity of Christ broke through, on that sea, so the work of Christ bursts forth in us when we endure those storms. I might ask you sometime, "How's your spiritual life?" Or "How's your walk with Christ?" Or "How are you doing in your relationship with God?" All those Christiany questions, pastory questions, right? And you might think, oh, "I'm in the middle of the storm," or I "Just got through the storm," or, or "The storm is coming," or whatever phase you might be in. Remember that they are designed for the work of Christ in your life to burst through. So expect to see it happen. Expect to see what God is doing in your life. And, and again, if that question comes to you for me or for somebody else, how's your spiritual life going? In that moment that we go, oh goodness, I, I don't know. I mean, uh, not sure. I mean, that's kind of a good telltale sign that the storm's on its way, Right? The storm is on its way, and we will be tested and see how we perform in that moment, whether we cling to Christ by his spirit or we look for a way out. J.C. Ryle again says, afflictions and crosses are the grindstones on which God is constantly sharpening those instruments which he uses most. The illustration is important there. In the, in the Proverbs, we see the iron sharpens iron. and And that's kind of a gruff illustration, isn't it? Again, Ryle's illustration of a grindstone. God's work in us, we can compare in some context to painting, I don't know, painting something beautiful, right? He's doing something wonderful in our lives. But the experience of it, it doesn't seem like we're just a blank canvas going, oh, wow, oh, red, oh, green, oh, what? what?" Most of the time it feels like a grindstone. It's going to feel rough. It's going to be challenging. We're called to embrace it and to see him in the midst of it. Last thing, seek the one who is seeking you. I guarantee you, the disciples, when they were in that boat, they were not going, where is Jesus? In the sense that they were looking for him on the sea. What were they looking for? They were looking for dry land. They were looking for the end of the story. They were looking for the end of the storm. Stop looking for the end of the storm. Stop looking for the end of the problem. Stop telling yourself that once this thing is over, everything's going to be great, because it's just going to get worse. Okay? It's either going to get worse, or it's not going to be as good as you thought it was going to be. Being on the other side of the storm. Seek the one who is seeking you, because Christ is seeking you. He is the great seeker of the soul. He longs for us to seek him as well in the midst of this. The disciples went from afraid to glad because they heard his voice. So my question this morning is, when you look to God's word, do you expect to hear from him? Not in the way of saying, I want you to be my puppet king and I want you to tell me all the good things that I want to hear and make me feel so much better when I read your word. But are you willing and open to saying, oh, ouch, this is a grindstone moment. This this storm is meant to teach me something deeper than perhaps I'm ready to experience. Christ will bring you to your desired haven. And that desired haven is not going to be retirement, retirement or Saturday, or vacation. Those things come and they're blessings, but they're not the true haven. Listen to Revelation 21.1, a great verse. You might know it. John says, Sam author, different book. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now that, I heard in a sermon one time, is far more significant than we think of. You might be thinking, oh my goodness, the sea is my favorite place to vacation. Where am I going to collect seashells in heaven? Right? <laughs> I'm not going to enjoy looking at the ocean and hearing the ocean waves. John's telling us the sea was no more, not because Jesus wants to take your favorite vacation spot, but because he's expressing to you that those storms on the raging sea are not going to happen again. There'll be a true refuge, a true and fuller and complete and perfect and satisfying sanctuary in Christ at the end of this road. But he also goes with you through it all, helping us to endure whatever storm we find on the sea. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Father, we thank you this morning that you indeed meet us in the midst of the sea. You have not simply sent us out and said, I'll see you on the other side, but you walked out on the water of our lives to save us from the raging sea of what sin has brought us. First and foremost, we have to praise you that if we know Christ, we are saved from the worst of storms. The storm of your wrath is satisfied and all is peace and tranquil because of what Christ did at the cross. Now, Lord, knowing that, may we endure in such a way that gives you praise for all that you are you might receive the glory that is due your name and that we might be built up into the image of Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.